namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa bhuttang tammang sankhang nasami Vesak, our theme today. So the birth in Lumbini, the enlightenment in Bodhgaya and uh, Parinibbana, Kushinagar. We don't, we don't say the, the Buddha died. The body, a body dies, but we say, when we talk about something, in the Buddha's enlightenment, we talk about the unconditioned or the unborn. And that's a very strange uh, kind of concept that you don't you don't find much in religious language. In religious language, you, you t- usually talk about a god, Allah, a superior being, that kind of talk. But the Buddha's realization, his enlightenment, was profound, and I would say it was spiritual. It wasn't just a kind of psychological readjustment where he became a nicer guy. Obviously, it's it's more than that. So he had to figure out a way how to get this across, didn't he? And so, rather than pitch it as Brahma or God or the Supreme Being or something like that, he pointed more to what it's not. So, so he pointed to the conditioned realm that we, that we live in, our bodies and our emotions and our social situations and our personal histories and our bank accounts and and all the rest that makes our normal social human existence. And he said to to live that well is important, to be a a good person, to live an altruistic life, to live a life of uh, a socially meaningful life, to live a life in relationship where we are giving as well as taking. And so the ideas of morality and compassion are, are, are deeply embedded in it. Buddhist social lifestyle, but uh, as I always like to say, that the, the teaching indicates that this is the method, not the goal itself. So being a good person is a method, and that's important because if you just had the kind of ultimate teachings, the unconditioned nibbana and so on, you, what do you do with your life? How should I live my life? Because my life is conditioned; it's dependent on who where I was born and my family and what I'm doing now. So the conditioned realm is important, but in itself, the Buddha said, you, 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 shouldn't, you shouldn't depend on conditions to realize the unconditioned. It's not, it's not clever. So he, he pointed to the fact that the conditioned realm, you can do a lot. You know, we can do a lot in the conditioned realm. We can take care of each other. So we have this day where we come together and the Sangha has been working very hard. I just travel around and come back and it's all done. <laughs> I was just in England and Italy and then lay people come and they help and they contribute their resources to this and this is, this is very important. And the result is that we can come together in this peaceful environment uh, and, and trust each other and enjoy sharing a meal and see each other maybe, we don't meet each other that often. And so our, our social life is good, I would say. We may not kind of like each other sometimes, but on the whole, on the whole, 
we're better than much of humanity, I think, because much of humanity is in conflict. So coming together in concord, coming together with a common purpose, coming together in ways which are not just based upon some kind of selfish agenda, what I want for myself out of this day, is a grand way to be as a social being. And that, that creates an environment in a social situation where we can reflect, we can contemplate the Buddhist teachings, and we can come away from here, I think, having a perspective on worldly concerns. Worldly concerns are endless, correct? Well, the world is a problematic place, put it this way. And have problems ever really come to an end in your life? my life, there's always problems, not kind of neurotic problems, just the ordinariness of horse flies biting you or ticks attacking you or all the rest of it, getting old and disagreements and lack of resources or too much resources. And so life is problematic in that way. And that we have to deal with. But the problem often is that we we dwell so much on the problems. We don't, oftentimes we don't know how to relax the mind, how to rest the mind, because problems are endless. And there's always something going on at work, at the monastery, with your family, with the environment, with the economy. And not to dismiss that, those are important, but to also to kind of consider how do you actually how do you rest the mind? How do you let the mind have a break? How do you how do you give the mind a vacation? Our monastery in in England, the last monastery I was just there, Chitta Viveka, Chitthurst Monastery, Chitta Viveka. Viveka is like uh, rest or vacation, vacation of the heart. So Ajahn Sumedha, when we moved from the Hampstead Vihara in 1979, and we moved out to West Sussex. He gave the name of the monastery Chitta Viveka, a sense of refuge of the heart or relaxed mind or, or freedom of the heart. Then when he moved to uh, the monastery north of Hemel Hempstead, he, he upped the ante and he called it Amaravati, the abiding in, in the deathless and the unconditioned. To some extent it was a take on a Vihara that was in London, it was called Sukhavati. Sukha means happiness. Sukhavati, Amaravati, Chitta Viveka. These are some of the words that we, we think about. But how do you, how do you rest the mind? How do you give it a break? Sometimes you just go canoeing or swimming or have a nice meal in a restaurant. And there's that kind of a way to rest the mind where you just have a nice, pleasant distraction. And that's important too. Working 24-7 is not a healthy way to live. So doing something out of the normal routines and whatever, these are some of the ways we relax. That's very much dependent on the conditions that like the restaurant has good food and the lake is warm enough to swim in or play bridge with your friends and your friends play bridge with you. But that's... That's limited. That's very much limited. We do that. I go canoeing, right? And do things like that. So that is, that's one way we get rest. But to, to really rest the mind, one has to learn how to stop thinking. Huh? Sorry. <laughs> and that's, that's quite hard. 
if you think about a car, if it's always running, if the engine's always running, 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 running all the time, then the car is built for running a long time, but at some point, the poor thing needs a rest. Right? Same with our, our minds. If our minds are always problem-solving, and we get into a cycle of always having to problem-solve, almost in a, I guess addiction would be too strong a word, but this habit, it's just a habit. You, you see something and your mind starts to problem-solve. Or, or our culture, of course, in the news cycles, it says how awful everything is. We're going down the tube in a, in a Speedo or something. <laughs> you know, the environment's falling apart, and we're going to have a fascist government south of the border, and, and it's all nonsense, isn't it? It's all just to kind of to frighten us and make us afraid, because right here and now, it's very quite nice. Some of my best friends are Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our best friends are Canadians. <laughs> so I gotta be careful. But I was just thinking how how we can always we can always find the negative, right? And just kinda chew it over like it like an old piece of gum. Did you hear what she did? And then you know what they did? <laughs> and, and you know, I read in I read in this blog that and then and then in the news it said and then just the mind is always grasping the negative. Why do we do that? Why is the negative so interesting? You know, the the classic thing about good news cycles is it doesn't sell. What is it about rape and war and bizarre whatever? Why do why do we get so interested in that? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of biological explanation, but we do. We get hooked into negativity in a way which is, a, which is very, very unfortunate. Or if it's not negativity, it can be just, just kind of like worry, problem solving. So one of the things we're trying to do in Jitta Viveka, in, in learning to rest the mind, is begin, beginning to address that compulsive thinking of the mind and open the mind in a way which is not bound by analysis or, or judgment or, or having to do anything or getting anything. I use Ajahn Sumedha's teaching a lot because he's a teacher <laughs> and he's very helpful. And, and recently I've been, I reflect a lot on his teaching, but you know how he says, it's like this. You know, that's his conclusion after 50 years as a monk. It's like this. Now, what he's pointing to, it's like this, before you think about it, you know, before you make a comment about it, it's like this. And when you really do that, it's like this, then your mind rests. And where does it rest? It doesn't rest in any other place than the present moment as it is. And this is wisdom. So my line is, wisdom says, it's like this. Now, if you take it's like this as a, some kind of a philosophical truth, well, then it's just a thought, and it's a tautology, or it's just ridiculous, of course. But if you stop thinking, and you learn to listen, and see, and feel, just very, very present, your mind begins to touch a place of restfulness. And that's not from desire, because you, you can feel anything. You feel really quite upset, and you can say, it's like this. 
And it's amazing how, if one has the presence of mind to, to awaken to a kind of negative pattern of mind, and you can say to yourself, it's like this. Your mind gets distance. Your mind gets space. Your mind begins to realize, oh yeah, that's the place of non-grasping. That's the place of non-attachment. That's the place of Chitta Viveka. It's like this. If you ponder how, how much of 24 hours is taken up by thinking, you realize it's quite a task to actually break up the thinking patterns, be they worrisome or fantasizing or whatever. It takes a, a considerable um, focus and determination and interest. So the contemplative becomes interested in silence. You become interested in, 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 in the mind which isn't analyzing or making a comment about the present moment. That's not trying to get rid of thought, but it's becoming interested in something other than thought. Most of us are, we're probably pretty decent thinkers. You know, we've been trained to think to some extent and analyze and, and uh, judge and, and, and so on. So we probably do that okay, right? I think. But it's the other, it's the other, the resting of the mind that we find more uh, challenging. So it takes intention. You know, when you make an intention, then that intention uh, awakens you to something. So I make an intention to to really begin to notice life as it presents itself. I'm going to practice. It's like this. So then that phrase is no longer just Ajahn Sumedho's take on Buddhism as a sort of final thing, but actually it's a contemplative, as I was saying in last night's talk, right? on, a full, on a full moon, it becomes like a mirror. And, and the idea of mirroring is important in Buddhism because um, um, if you're walking, and if you're standing, say, and your posture is off to the right, your hip is out, let's say, and, you, and you're compensating on the other side, and, Physiotherapist looks at you. Physiotherapist says, "Wow, you're really, you're really, you've really been compensating for that bad hip, and now you're way over, and you're going to have to work on that." And then someone who does uh, Alexander technique or Feldenkrais or whatever these different techniques, they start to straighten you up and say, "Well, this is this is what it might feel like to feel straight. You don't feel straight. You feel crooked. It feels odd because you're used to being crooked." And anyone who is my age knows how crooked the body gets. It's like, oh, it's all over the place. But you, you begin to see that what one feels is appropriate or whatever, when it's mirrored by someone or a mirror itself, so the person whose hip is out, they look at the mirror and they say, yeah, I see what the physio's talking about. I really am way off to one side. Wow, I never realized that. And then you, you know, whatever way you address it, you try to, um, get it right, and, that, and the rightness feels wrong. It doesn't feel quite right. It feels wrong because it's unfamiliar. And the territory of no thought is unfamiliar to most of us because we're so familiar with filling space, filling mind. We're, we're used to worrying. So the idea of mirroring is taking a teaching and repeating it in your mind throughout the day some phrase, some teaching, which mirrors your own mental behavior, your own mental attitudes, the habits of mind which you unfortunately engage in. And the mirror has to suit you, right? And the, so the teaching has to suit where you're at. But if we take something like, it's like this, 
and you make a determination to bring that to consciousness twice an hour, you sleep, say, six hours, eight hours, so you've got, you know, 20 hours, 22 hours, that's 44 times, 44, yeah, let's say 50 times a day. You say, it's like this. Now, just to do that 50 times a day, and then do it every day, and I, I won't do the math for you, but how many times would you have done that in a year? Now, that's contemplative. That's not just, oh yeah, that was an interesting thought, and then forgetting about it, you have to remember. And that probably is the, the problem with training the mind. We understand, I think we understand, it's just we, we forget how to train the mind, and we forget, we forget our intentions. So you, you pick up a phrase, like on Friday I was talking about the Metta Sutta, but in this case, uh, it's like this. And then you, you have some wisdom around that, you feel, yeah, if I could do that, that would mirror what I'm what I'm creating around this present moment. So, I'm I'm in a situation, and I feel the person is annoying or irritating. It's like this, and then I can see the annoyance is mirrored. I, I notice the annoyance. If I'm not awake to the annoyance, I become annoyed, which is okay, right? But then that annoyance becomes a habit, and then I don't realize chitta viveka. I don't realize the silence of the heart because I'm kidnapped. So, two times an hour, it's every 30 minutes. You can set your clock and drive yourself crazy. But that's the idea of the contemplative life. So wisdom says, it's like this, and compassion, compassion says, from Lompas Sumedos, compassion says, it all belongs. It all belongs. And that's, that, that, that's very profound because there's some things you wish were not here. Like, classically for me, it's the bugs. I wish I was in Arizona, where, where venable chemical comes from. There's no water. And there's no water. It sounds disastrous, but there's no bugs. <laughs> sounds good. But I'm sure if I was in Arizona, I'd find something to whine about. I know, I know the whine. So it all belongs. It all belongs. You still do something. So actually, Mario Chemical has some really good ideas about, you know, we're working with the whole tick problem and and uh, so we're sort of on the case. But ticks belong, jealous thoughts belong, arthritis belongs, as does a good meal, as being together with friends on Vesa, it all belongs. And what does that do? What does that do? If you do that as a reflection, not as a belief, it all belongs. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. <laughs> but that's just kind of cynical. But it all belongs as a, as a mirroring to what I'm doing in my life. So I see someone doing something in a way which I, I don't approve of. I'm very judgmental, right? Sure, if I'm the boss or it's dangerous or whatever, I can say something. I said, you shouldn't use a chainsaw that. And in fact, you shouldn't even use a chainsaw. That's, that's, that's fine, and, and we can do that. But bigger than that, bigger than just the functional part of our judgmental mind, there's the mind which always finds fault, doesn't it? With ourselves or with others in ways which is actually not so helpful, not so very necessary, but it's, it becomes a habit of, you know, looking at a person and, and seeing that 10% which is wonky, or looking at, at, at a situation and, and, and 
cynically, you know, making fun of it, or kinds of ways that human beings get up to this. So compassion, or, or metta, or karuna, or whatever you want, it all belongs. It's this kind of beautiful opening of the heart. And it's also citta viveka. Because the resting of the heart is an accepting of the whole business of the human experience. It's an acceptance of the good, bad, and the ugly, right? We don't approve of immoral things, and, and we try to live in a good and proper way, so we live a good life. But when push comes to shove, things happen. You know, there are difficulties and so on, and it all belongs. So you took these two. One took that, those two, and said, it's like this. To me, if I, if I, if I keep remembering, it's like this. My mind is silent. And then if I'm judging, well, it shouldn't be like this. Yeah, but it is like this. And I keep doing that, then I begin to have a sense of relaxed. And then I can make choices. I can make choices to critique something or, or try to change something. That's fine. But it comes from a place of wisdom and, and stillness rather than from the place of reactivity, aversion, fears. That's fine. So it's like this. And then and the mind choosing, wanting this, not wanting that. Yeah, but it all belongs. It's also chitta viveka. Your mind gets really relaxed and open. And then you find that the choices you make are, are from wisdom and compassion rather than from annoyance and fear or whatever it is. These are simple, really simple thing to say, isn't it? It all belongs. It's like this. Challenge is to do that day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out, like all the time. So I know with myself, if I came across a phrase in my early days, I don't write things out so much, but I used to catch it, get a phrase, and then I'd write it out. I'd have it on my desk, and then I'd look at it, and I'd see it. I'd always be reminded of it. I'd pin it up to a wall, and I'd just be reminded of it. And I begin to just use that phrase all the time, all the time, as a reflection. So the one I always talk about, infinite patience, boundless compassion, I used that for a long, long time, maybe two, three years. Infinite patience, boundless compassion. You keep saying that into your mind. Your mind becomes to have a different kind of dialogue with the world than the critical, frightened, worrisome, uh, problematic mind. It has a different relationship to the world because it's now imbued with an intention that's based upon understanding yourself, based upon wisdom, based upon a kusla kamma of wholesome, wholesome intentions. If we just pursue the thinking mind from its habitual standpoints, then we're victims. We're just victims to worry or, or fear or, or and, and these are very alienating kind of energies. They're very lonely kind of energies. If I allow my mind to be very critical of others, then I become that. I become separated from them through my critical mind. So your idiosyncrasies are just as valid as mine. Now that's a hard one. My idiosyncrasies are very important. Yours, I don't know. <laughs> And that conceit, of course, is what runs the world, the, the wars of the world. You know, my preferences are, are wise, and my aesthetic tastes are very skillful, but not yours. You know? <laughs> and that alienation, of course, is selfishness. So when I say how we can disagree on viewpoints, uh, like you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, right? worst thing you can do is talk about religion and politics. And why? Because these views that we have can be very, very entrenched. But 
If I do, it all belongs, and it's like this, then I have a kind of listening consciousness which can really have empathy for people. Notice how like, like people who you're, your type of person. Say, as, as, as a teacher, there are certain types of people who have a similar kind of emotional makeup to me, and a similar kind of challenges they're experiencing in their meditation or in their social being to myself. And I get along really well with them, because I can understand them. There was one fellow in England who just baffled me. He could not figure out where he was coming from. And, and he had a whole different way of perceiving the world in ways which I found very confusing. And basically, I didn't want to be near him. Because <laughs> I, could, I couldn't figure him out. But I wasn't wise enough then to say, oh yeah, but it's like this. Now, if I would have been wise enough in those days to say, oh, it's like this, and I really just would stay with my confusion, I would have eventually understood him. But I didn't have the wisdom then, so I just <laughs> ran away from him. <laughs> I don't know this guy. And then I created, I created him. I created, he's one of those nutty English eccentrics, and I'm just a normal Canadian. <laughs> and, and then I would look for people to verify my opinion. <laughs> so I go, which was gossip, and then I create him, and I, you know that's just like total delusion, total alienation, no compassion, and it, it never solved the problem because every time I had to talk with him, I got confused again. <laughs> and then I compounded the problem because now I created him. So not only you know was his his mannerism somewhat confusing for me, then I created him. You know, he's like this, and he's like that, and I did some kind of, you know, how we Westerners always have a kind of psychological overlay. He's got this or that condition. And, and then I would relate to that. You know, now I'm relating, not just for my own confusion, but for my own judgment. So where's reality? This poor guy. <laughs> so all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, through just bad thinking and, and a kind of judgmental mind, I'm no longer relating to this person. I'm relating to a whole historical set of concepts, and then I'm reacting through that and just confirming my judgments and opinions. Now that's, Lompa Cha would call that practicing disaster. <laughs> no freedom in that. And we do that. You know, we, we, we do that to ourselves, we do that to others. But to awaken, you know, to awaken to this moment is not a judgment. It's not an analysis. It's silence. It's like this. And then to keep the heart open, it all belongs. You begin to feel, I think, if you begin to feel the heart chakra more. You know, this part of our life where we, we are empathetic to life rather than judgmental. Judgment is important, critical mind is fine, but it seems to me that I can, not only can I critique something, I can have empathy for something. When I can skillfully use the critical mind, but also put it aside, Chitta Viveka, I feel that my, my attention comes down into the heart. When I, and I, I can relate to people from this area, then that's, it all belongs. And, and that's a really important way to relate to people, not through my, my judgments and such like, but rather, where are you at? So we're kind of really listening, listening to someone. So if I give that example of my own delusion, then had I had the wisdom then 
to listen to my own heart when I felt the judgments, to you know, to feel my own heart when I felt alienated or fearful or confused, just to stay there, then that would have ceased. And then I'd have true empathy for this person. But I probably still have some karma with this person. <laughs> to work something out, I don't know. You see what I mean? That our thinking mind can be very clever, but it can be, and not so much long, but it can be very alienating, because that's all we see. You know, we don't see, quite often we don't see that, you know, you might, might see someone and, and they seem very grumpy, and oh well, that person's in a bad mood, and then you find out they've got cancer. And then all of a sudden you feel empathy. Whereas before I just felt judgmental because they didn't smile at me. And then you say, oh wow, they're going through, and all of a sudden your heart changes, doesn't it, to empathy, to compassion. And this is happening all the time. So to put in balance the critical mind, the, the critical faculty, to be able to rest the mind, chitta viveka, to be able to have that sense of open-hearted acceptance, it all belongs, is, is a practice. It's a practice. I don't think it's like, really, it's not too difficult to figure out. It's not, it's not rocket science. But it is something that we need to kind of apply our attention to. So it's a Vesak, and, and you think of the compassion of the Buddha. From our text, apparently, after his enlightenment, he kind of thought, well, should I teach or not? And he thought, well, who's going to understand this? And uh, then, fortunately, the forces of goodness said, there are those who have little dust in their eyes. Hopefully that's us. Um, and, and so he offered his teaching. And if you read about his life, that was 45 years of walking up and down the Ganges Valley and teaching problematic monks, other sects trying to do him in. He was accused of, of all kinds of things by jealous uh, people from other sects. So it wasn't like, oh, he's the Buddha now and he's just going to float on a cloud and look down on us and sprinkle holy water on us. <laughs> no, he had a arduous physical life that he honored. So his compassion and his wisdom are something that comes comes to us today. So maybe in conclusion, just to, to kind of think of this teaching and, and what it what it is for you and why it's important for you and then bring bring forth a heart of gratitude and, and that kind of determination to honor the teaching by, by doing doing the practices that, that we are so encouraged to do. Alright, I'll leave that for your reflection. <laughs>